Howdy guys and girls, welcome to another episode of How Did I Get Here? This is me, Sam Lax, and this is episode number three now. So beforehand we've had, number one was with uh, Jamie Sparks, Inventurer, so check that out. Insane, one of the youngest pair to row the Atlantic and uh, subsequently row the Indian Ocean and many other things. And then we caught up with Chris Greenwood, aka Madeira Verde, the champion of World Music 2.0. We talked about his incredible career and journey through the music industry as it evolves through the years and now here we are about to get into a doozy it's with the editor the current editor of bbc horizon and he has been since 2014 uh, steve crabtree and a fantastic man from barren ferns up north uh, started his teenage years in dockyards, in the shipyard, sorry, painting nuclear submarines and eventually made his way down to London to give it all for TV and was living off uh, barely anything in a tiny cupboard, converted cupboard, and finally got his break into TV and worked his way up to become editor. So an incredible story in its own right, which is fully documented, I might add, in a brilliant interview he does with Paul Blanchard on uh, Paul's podcast, which is called Media Masters. So I thoroughly recommend you check that out. And... Um, because it's documented so well there I didn't want to do the full chronology so I went a bit off piece with questions so we got our meandering chat covers everything from uh, the joys of working on Horizon and of course with Steve's unique connections and insight into industries and technologies where he thinks the future is going in terms of the environment technology he loves his gadgets so we talk about that what he thinks the future holds in general really and um engineering your own dreams so he uh, talks about techniques to do this and his hero Stan Lee the famous comic book writer of Marvel of course and he uh, actually met him on his first ever TV show he talks about that and he's hung out with the maker of Tetris so many great stories to tuck into so without further ado I leave you to enjoy this fantastic conversation with Steve Crabtree Splendid. So here we are in uh, BBC White City over in West London and I'm joined with the most busy man alive, let alone on this particular day where it seems to be swamped and he's kindly taken the time out to uh, chat to me and that is the editor of Horizon, Steve Crabtree. Thanks so much for being here, Steve. That's okay. And I'm, as I was just explaining off mic, so this is somewhat of a selfish pursuit, this kind of podcast, because basically I, in my mid, well, my early uh, 20s, had this kind of quarter life crisis classic millennial load of rubbish and I, what the heck am I doing I look around me all my friends are progressing to I don't know whether it be accountancy etc etc they seem to be on quite linear paths no bumps in the road of course everyone has their own battles you know nothing about but I just didn't know what I wanted to do I started off at university doing mechanical engineering I had a uh, um, scholarship to be an ar- army officer on graduation and um, yeah and now here I am doing a podcast and working freelance, trying to break into the media. So I just could not predict where I've come. And the beauty of your story and people that I've in, um, been interested in interviewed before are almost the, the unpredictability of life and how when you make peace with that kind of uncertainty and just realise how exciting and important this kind of uncertainty is in life that you can, you can thrive and make progress and stuff like that. So that's, that's one of the reasons I've got you on. And it's basically just to tease out those of fantastic anecdotes that you've got locked in that head of yours because I'm sure that we touched upon it. So we met when um, 
Professor Carol Reeves, the wonderful Carol Reeves, got you in as an old friend, I believe, to give a lecture at science and film production module that she was giving at UCL, where I was. And um, you, you just dropped just a, a handful of breadcrumbs of little stories which we'll touch upon um, about getting engineering your dream job, I suppose. So firstly, I want to ask you, uh, who was the most inspiring person of your early teens? Then we'll, we'll go from there. Gosh, that is a brilliant question. The most inspiring person of my early teens um, will probably come up in another uh, uh, anecdote later on in this, but it was, it was Stan Lee who, um, as you know, sort of co-created Spider-Man, yeah, the Incredible Hulk, I think, the Fantastic Four, uh, the X-Men. And as a boy growing up, I, was, um, I wasn't very good um, at school at all. Um, I just... I didn't enjoy going to to school very much, but I was very well read, and I used to collect a lot of comics and a lot of magazines and things like that. And um, when I was about nine or ten, um, my brother brought me a copy. Um, I remember it was May nineteen seventy nine, I think, of the first reprint of an Incredible Hulk comic, and um, I just really it, it literally. It still does, but it literally sort of transformed my life because suddenly there was this amazing, fantastic world that I could escape into. Um, and that's what I did, and I became a voracious comic book collector, um, which carried right throughout my teenage years. So, I mean, that in many ways, it, it, funnily enough, you know, I then, um, as a sort of 12, 13, 14, probably, 13, 14-year-old, um, started delivering newspapers and got a milk round and did all those things that uh, young boys do to get money but all my money was spent on uh, comics really and then um, as I sort of got slightly older teenager I got into things like um, fantasy role playing games so I was really into kind of dungeons and dragons and things like mm-hmm. that but that kind of um, fa- that kind of fantastic fan- fantasy science fiction world um, was was a big thing for me Fantastic, and you touched upon it there in, in this brilliant interview of Paul Blanchard as well, which I'm so glad to have discovered his podcast because they are yeah, phenomenal. Great, aren't they? With some, really yeah, incredible people, and yeah, really interesting. But you talk about, and I, I've watched um, a TED, TEDx talk with a chap called uh, Sir Ken Robinson, not the Sir Ken, but he's, um, I think he's called like a creativity expert. I think he now lives and works in America, but his TED talk is about how education kills creativity. And I wanted you to weigh in on that. What do you think about it, especially having come out of school, I think, was it with 1A, 1O level? I, I think, think I had an O level in English, but I certainly didn't have any A levels. Mm. I, I didn't really have any in either... I didn't really have any G, CSEs there were in my day. I mean, mm. I was... So, so the thing was, I was in the bottom sets for everything at school, mm. apart from English, which I was in the kind of one of the middle sets. But... I, but I, I want to be careful how I say this because I, I know exactly where you're coming from and mm. part of me agrees with you which is that creativity thing but you know education is really important I was a very good reader I was a very good writer I was going to say who inspired that that well, kind of that family was, or was, peers well or? Uh, my dad but probably my dad actually more than more than my mum but my my dad used to write a lot of um, kind of letters and articles for the local newspaper in Barrow in Furness where I'm from. Was she a journalist? Or? My dad this was. My, da- oh, no, sorry. no, no, he worked in a shipyard which okay. is where yep. we all work. But just as a hobby, I mean, I think the thing which I will talk about later is how you can almost sort of turn your hobby into a career, which was funny. But So my dad wrote just like funny letters and short stories and 
he was a bit of a local history buff, but it was really odd, I guess. I, I, I haven't really analysed it, but when, growing up and every week or two weeks would be a piece that my dad had written in the local newspaper and you'd read it and, and you know. But what I meant was, I think, what I was trying to say is I was very, you know, my, gosh, my mum, you know, I mean, I got told off for being not very good at school. It was, you know, I, it wasn't like I just didn't learn. I just didn't really, like, I didn't apply myself, mm, I don't mm, think. Mm. So I read and read and read. I'd, I've I collected books and magazines and, and comics and what have you all the way through my uh, youth and was very obsessed with... I, I sort of always have this kind of sort of strange... I guess it's a strange collector impulse, but... Um, I got. I was really into television, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I used to record, uh, um, not on videotape, but on audio. On audio, cassette. that is yeah. obsessed. I that know. is, yeah. And I would, and I would listen to, you know, I would record lots. And and I'm talking, I'm not really talking big factual pieces mm -hmm. like Horizon. I mean, I used to, I definitely used to record things like the Paul Daniels Magic Show, or um, you know, Morecambe and Wise, or Cannon and Ball, or, and I would um, um, listen to this stuff over and over and over again. Um, um, so I was kind of educated. I just wasn't very academic. I think is what I'm saying. Mm, but, um, mm. I don't think I don't think necessarily academia would stop you being creative. No, it's not just... at all. No, no. I don't mean to come yeah, across no, no. like that. I mean, kind of. Uh, Ken makes the point, amongst other things, it's kind of like the argument against the one model fits all. Because of course you'll always have people that slip the net. But then if you have a huge population how else can you can't have tailor-made education you know private schools have the luxury of being able to do that but of course when you roll it out on a national scale you can't so i just yeah i was interested because one of my questions is how do you foster your creative juices i suppose i the brilliant part with paul that you were talking about dungeons and dragons and that pure on-the-fly creativity i i did a bit of um improv comedy at university okay. yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I, I love it and yeah. i'm off to fringe tomorrow actually if yeah. I, I find it fantastic really? And um, being like, okay, we're opening this door. Oh, what's in this door? And then you, you take a step back and go, well, in this door is this. Yeah. You, you were, do you think you were flexing this muscle from an early age without even realising? Yeah, so I think that's the, there's two things that I love more than anything, even now, today. One of them is sitting down and making something up, you know, and we do that in telly all the time when we come up with new ideas and write treatments and what have you. But the, the story I was telling Paul was just that... The, when I played Dungeons and Dragons when I was a, a, a teenager, um, one of the one of the kind of what you do in that, if, if any of your listeners have never have never played a role playing game, is you have a set of rules and a fantasy world, and you create a scenario, and then your players go through the scenarios. You tell them what you know, what's down the corridor and what's behind the door. Now, often that would be planned in advance, so you'd spend a few nights before the, your friends came around designing your adventure for them for that evening, and. What I used to love, I used to do that, and I'd, uh, we'd create a big sort of fantasy world. And but what I used to really enjoy doing was getting everyone around and getting the 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 uh, you know the sort of folder out and putting it in front of my stack of books um, and pretend that I'd planned everything in front of me. And in fact, there was nothing; it was just a blank piece piece of paper. And then we just made, I just made it up as we went along. And when you do that, and I mean, I, I am absolutely. A, card carrying geek I, I've been one my entire life so I don't care mm -hmm. um, you know we used to play those sorts of games two or three days a week night, nights a week and when you do that all the time you that sort of creativity muscle as you put it really well is, is what you're doing and and so you're very 
good in later life at um, problem solving because whether it's a TV script or radio or actually anything, you know, um, um, you're able to make something up mm. on the, on the spot. Um, so that's the first thing that I think I think people can do, or and I personally think anyone can do it. I think mm. you've got to mm. be motivated to do it. Um, I've got to sorry jump in with a question that sparked my interest because you say when you're like you say you've got a blank piece of paper and you're flexing um, this muscle so to speak to create this universe there's an argument here floating around every now and then that it's the argument for book versus film and people I've, I've got real bookworm friends that say oh no no the film's nothing like it hasn't got a scratch on the book you know when you're reading a book for example, Lord of the Rings, you know, you're, I've got a real a mate that actually got a job as a cleaner in Hobbiton, that's how much he loves right. it. And um, he said, when you're reading the book, you're imagining every blade of grass, like how they look, their accents, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in a film or a TV series, et cetera, you're given an image that di- the director has stepped in, whoever else it may be, and has given you this. So what do you, do, do you think TV and film is, um, for those that don't work in it, do you think it's eroding, like that creative muscle? Or do you think... I, well, I don't think so. I just think, I mean, I think that's a very simple answer to that is, frankly, is that they're just different things, you know. I mean, I still read books um, and I still, uh, I mean, I haven't played a game of Dungeons and Dragons. Actually, we, we got together a, f- a few guys in our late 40s and kicked it around a, a couple of years ago just for fun, but I haven't really sat down and played that for years. But again, it is a different thing, you know. Mm-hmm. These are These are... When I mean I I'm you're in your early twenties you said so mm. you probably won't even remember this, and I'm not even that old. I mean I'm I'm in my late forties, but people have been saying that books of, of you know the internet and and uh, you know Kindles and what have you were gonna were gonna destroy reading. And as far as I can see, people are reading more than ever. You know there's it just they're just different. I mean I I honestly think I get as much pleasure watching. Uh, reading The Lord of the Rings as I do watching the film. Um, you know, I haven't done either for a long time, but that doesn't wouldn't stop me doing e- either of them. What I actually enjoy, I tell you, being a, being a Marvel superhero mm-hmm. p- uh, person, is I enjoy watching the new, um, all of the latest movies that come out and trying to spot all of the comic references because I have, you know, course, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. and that's kind of a fun thing. For someone of my age to do, because I remember them, them, them coming out at the, at the, you know, the first time round. Yeah, doing continuity, but for, yeah. for a hobby, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't buy. I mean, it's not that I'm saying you, you're, I don't. They're just different things. Yeah, you know? no, 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 completely agree. Yeah, yeah. No, interesting to get your point on that. And talking of um, middle-aged guys hanging out and kicking it around, tell me about the, this Tetris anecdote. Tell me about. Oh, this, well, that was that was. Um, I was doing a program for. Uh, I was doing a program for BBC Two. Mm. Um, it was called Can't Get Enough, and it was um, um, three a three part series, and it was called Can't Get Enough. Dot dot dot. Can't get enough music. Can't get enough TV. Can't get enough video games. And the other thing, you know, it won't surprise your listeners, given the direction of this conversation, is that I'm a yeah. huge video game player and always have been from the um, late seventies, early eighties onwards. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a VHS. I'm a VHS. Atari VHS wow. is the first. Yeah. Then you go on to. I mean, I could do them all, but yeah, I went, yeah, I went from Atari. Well, I went from Atari VHS to the. Uh, ZX Spectrum 
to the Amiga uh, 464, I think it was, to the, uh, the Amiga 600, to a Mac, and then I was at college. Um, but generally, you know, I've been back now, and if any of your super video game um, geeks, if there are any super video game geeks listening, I went and got myself um, a Vectrex um, off eBay that a couple of years ago, serious. just because it was awesome, and I'm a, you know, a council estate boy, and there's no way we could have afforded one of them when I was growing up, so I just went and got one for the fun, so have a look at a Vectrex if, okay, if, yeah. if anyone's interested, but yeah, it, was definitely. A, it was a kind of 80s uh, a, a video game system. Um, Anyway, I was making this, I was, it was when I was still uh, directing, um, and I was um, making a film about video games, and we interviewed Alexei Pajitnov, I think, I, I probably haven't pronounced his name correctly, but Alexei Pajitnov, and, um, who, who uh, invented Tetris, and he's a really, really, really lovely fella. And um, he came over, we flew him over from America because it was kind of cheaper from the bu- for the budget sure. for him to come here than me to go there, yeah. I, I seem to remember. And he came over and we hung out together for a weekend, uh, did, some, did the interviews, did some filming. How old what was he, you? just out of interest? He's, he must be in his 60s now, I okay. think. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was, then this is probably 10 or 15 years ago, must yeah. be, when I, when I interviewed him. Was he responsible for the amazing soundtrack as well? Which I, I don't know. Which had as a ringtone. I don't know. No, I, no. I just know that he, in Russia, behind the Iron Curtain, he did Tetris and, and it was kind of uh, copied and, you know, became the most played video game at the time. Yeah. Of all time at one time. And he, anyway, he was desperate to go out for a curry and there was a specific curry house he wanted to go to in London, which he knew, which I didn't know. And uh, yeah, and we went there, and, and he asked me if you know, like, have a drink with him, mm. which I agreed. And he just ordered a bottle of vodka for the table and just put it in the middle. I mean, typical Russian. <laughs> yeah, you know. that'll keep you warm. Uh, yeah. yeah, and we just had a brilliant night. I mean, it was just he was so lovely and interesting and funny. And I still got I I got him to draw um, a, a Tetris shape on my little yeah. business card and sign it. So he. Um, so he did that, yeah. So he what a man. It. Yeah. That's incredible. That leads on nicely to what other amazing, weird, wonderful, strange scenarios have you found yourself in? Firstly, in the role of editor, and then second amount, uh, before you were doing that. Well, the, the answer to the first question will probably not be very exciting for you, because as, as editor of Horizon, I'm pretty much office-based all mm. the time. Um, I mean, the, the thing that's happened recently, which you, you'll see in the press this week, is... Um, we made um, we've made a film about psychopaths. Yes, I, and, saw, I was literally yeah, and, um, there, yeah. So I was as a we we well I am responsible for the opening up a correspondence with the Mers murderer, Ian Brady. So wow. we were sharing letters for a few months before he died. What and was we, that like communicating? It was really it wasn't very pleasant actually. No. I found it the, I found it very disturbing. But um, but you know we were trying to get an insight into. Mm. The way his his mind worked um, for our presenter, Utfrith, psychologist, to to comment on in the film, which is what we do. So of course, yeah. that's that's quite an odd um, uh, that's quite an odd situation to be in. Is it fruitful? Yeah, I yeah. think so. I mean, it's it's you'll have to watch the film, of but course, I think it's yeah. very, it's very interesting that it's it's what he doesn't say is what's interesting. That paints the picture, you know. Mm. That paints the picture. Mm. Um, 
But no, the truth is, as editor, it, the, the, it's a really fun, exciting job because you, you know, you commission these films and you, you see them you through. commission people's, yeah, people's dreams if yeah, they come yeah. up to you if and they, they come up with ideas or, Exactly. Um, and, and, or you're on, you know, so often I'll say, let's make a film about this, you know. Um, so that's, you know, that comes from, I, I think that's, um, but the, 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 I guess what I'm saying is actually on, on the ground, what I do most is sit in an office and manage a team mm. so mm -hmm. that you know i mean i enjoy it it's what i like doing the best but it's not there's there's not many anecdotes there you know course, I, yeah, I i go yeah, and do course. i do some i do some talks at festivals and i do you know we there's a Cheltenham science festival which i go to yeah, and yeah. do talks on and and i go and do presentations when i'm asked for for people like the british um science association or the you know um, uh, Welcome Trust, we go and do little um, presentations too. But part of being editor is being is being is being um, the sort of face of the program, really. Often. Totally, so totally, you've got to yeah. to do that, you know. The PR um, side of it, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, you get a lovely Hawkeye perspective on everything that's going on, and you can kind of see exciting projects coming along. You're, oh, that's going to be fantastic yeah. when it hits and stuff like that. Yeah. What are you most excited about? coming in this next in this next year or so I don't know so how. we've got yeah well we we have just seen a film this morning uh, mm -hmm. which is in the uh, cutting room about spina bifida which is really interesting yeah. presented by um, an actress called Ruth Madley who is BAFTA nominated she's got spina bifida and she goes on a kind of personal journey to look at that and understand it um, I've got a a team currently working with the Cassini team. So we've got, you know, Ooh. Cassini is um, is whizzing around Saturn at the moment, um, about to be plunged into it. So um, we've got, well, the, the edit is just, we've just paused the edit for a week and then the team um, go out to, uh, I think it's JPL, but wherever in NASA to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to hook up with the team there. And then we're doing a kind of fast turnaround ending for that. So that's going to be broadcast. I mean, we will still be cutting that film on the Sunday wow. night and it will be broadcast on the Monday night. So wow. those ones are quite exciting to do from totally. time to time. Do you have a lot of that kind of turnaround time? What, what are we talking... Yeah, there's usually, there's usually one or two a year. A, t a typical Horizon will take about, from the very start to the very finish, it will take about five months to make. Okay, yeah. That sort of period of time. Um, we have done films... In, the, the previous record for me was a film about Ebola, which we did in five weeks. But of course, because it's we've, pressing. We've mm. recently just done uh, the cyber attack, you know, the cyber attack on the NHS that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And with Kevin Fong, and we made that film in, in, I think, well, it was less than three weeks. I think we calculated it was something like 13 working days or Good something. Good Lord, that's incredible. You know. And that's from what conception, of course, the actual attack that's from conception to... to being on telly. That is insane. I know, it was. I mean... It's sleepless nights. My, my, exactly. And we, we and we had a huge team, you know, mm -hmm. so it's, um, you have multiple edit suites open, so mm -hmm. you're cutting, mm -hmm. you've got three edit suites open at the same time sure. whilst you're filming and what have you. But I was really proud of that. The team who made it were amazing. And, and I always have said about that film that, if you watched it and you didn't know it was made in three weeks, you wouldn't be able to tell. I mean, mm. it had drama reconstruction in it. Incredible, went to yeah. America. Went, you know, it was just... Totally, it was, yeah. It was so it's not like a news piece, a no. news piece that would fade with time. It exactly. is a standalone module that will yeah. stand the test of time. I mean, my colleagues in current affairs would probably laugh at me for saying... 
three weeks is fast because they're used course, to doing yeah, yeah, yeah. those sorts of Different films in, 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 in yeah. you know days. But um, in the sort of the documentary world that we live in, those sort of fast turnarounds are kind of quite rare, really. So got you, yeah. yeah. So in a busy, busy life like you have, what do you? How do you stay on top of things? What's the best analog possession you have, whether it be object or human, yeah. that helps you keep doing, keeps your appointments, etc. And yeah. what is the best technological help? Okay, so I'm sat here. Your views won't be able to see, but I have I have a pad, nice, uh, a hardbacked pad, yeah. pad uh, old fashioned. But inside that pad, I have um, uh, I sort of design my myself as only a, a geek would, but I have a series of sheets that I sellotape in, which have things like who's working on what film, when that film began, when that film's going to be delivered. Um, I have a kind of a run of dates and things that are really important. So I, and I carry my pad everywhere. Fascinating. So you've made your own Gantt chart. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The PA hasn't pulled you onto Google Sheets or anything like that. No, 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 no. no. I I need that. and, And it's got things like, it's just silly things, but it's got things like, important phone numbers that I need to know and, and, and you know, charge codes and mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. things that, that we, you, you need where I always know, even if, you know, all the batteries are dead on the phone and if then it's fine. You're good to go, yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is very predictable, which is my, obviously my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing I was never, I was always shocked because I always used to have a, um, believe it or not, I, I was a I kept a kind of analog diary, a a printed piece of paper that I stuck in front of my desk with pencil things written on. But the one big change to my life as becoming editor is that I have a, 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 a an electronic calendar now, okay. which my assistant deals with. So, mm. and um, you know, he, that was the first time I ever had an assistant in television, and it's funny how you get sort of. Um, quickly seduced by someone looking after your diary of course it's know. outsourcing isn't it it's yeah, natural like, like it's... the invention of fire and moving cooking outside of the yeah, stomach like yeah. you suddenly i'm the same my memory is external it's in my phone yeah. my calendar is meticulous and yeah. if someone asked me what i did yesterday i i struggle sometimes yeah, and yeah. it's scary yeah but it's good so i'm i'm a you know um ash my assistant who, who's brilliant he will he will put things in and he knows how to you know we he knows how to structure my day um and but that's you know effectively um um you know you wake up you check your diary you know what you're gonna do first and then that's it so i'm a bit i you know i rarely leave home without that now okay fantastic and i notice you've got a fancy watch as well it's, is that linked up it's all, it, this, it, it is actually yeah this is just a a fitbit because i like to monitor how many steps i've walked but i've I, it's a, it's quite a good one so that you can, it'll send you messages and things and sure. diary, exactly, it'll buzz when a, a mm. diary thing happens. But it doesn't, you've got to be in, within the vicinity of your phone, so it's I a slight, see, I mean, so. you might as well just look at your phone, but you know. Yeah, yeah, a, of course. Look, it's a gadget. I spent five years on Tomorrow's World, mm-hmm. which some of your listeners may remember was a BC One a technology show, so um, uh, any sort of gadget I'm I'm a sucker for, really, you know. Yeah, of course. And on that note, it, especially a man with your kind of your insight into the industry and where things are going, uh, I'm going to, I think it's Ray Quilsvich, I've been completely butchering that and probably misremembering it as well, but he talks about this technological singularity in the future where uh, the rate of pace of change of technology is, is going to outpace our, our evolution. So in order to keep up with it, we have to integrate. Yeah. So, of course, 
to watch maybe the first of the gradual <laughs> sure, steps. Yeah. What do you think? Do you what do you think for the next five, ten, fifteen years? Will we see kind of an embedded Oyster card or passport chip? What do you think? Um, right. Here's a good. Th- it is a really good question, and I really enjoy these sorts of um, uh, conversations and debates. There is no question in my mind that, as I said, you know, you, you an Apple Watch. I don't own one, but an Apple Watch is has you can pay things with an Apple Watch, and um, the thing the thing is, I've seen people trying to pay things with an Apple Watch, and quite honestly, it's easier just to get, hand over a credit card mm. at the moment, mm. in my in my opinion. So I think the technology is getting there, and I clunky. think yeah. it's a bit clunky, but it gets better and better and better and better. So there is no question that in the next 5, 10, 15 years, whatever, you will, you will start to have this sort of technology um, that is more and more integrated into us, certainly in the, in, in, you know, in the Western world, as it were. Mm. Um, I, th- I have the, my, the most interesting conversations I always have are, uh, with my colleagues are about artificial intelligence and robotics and where that is heading. Mm. And we have some really difficult um, disagreements in, in, you know, in, a, in a fun way. Yeah, of course, but yeah. I, I am very sceptical of AI and robotics sort of taking over the world. And mm. I actually find myself on a slightly in a minority. We were talking um, to some friends and, and journalists a, a, a week or two ago um, and you know the, the the idea that you know in in ten fifteen or fifty years in fact mm. that there will be a robot that's um, uh, uh, you know beginning to take over and do everybody out of a job and mm-hmm. because I I can see it and I can see it the technology is available but I still can't understand why like the the the, the sheer cost of building something like that. Mm with a limited functionality. So we, we keep saying, we made a film, a Horizon film about driverless cars. I Sorry, I, say, I, I, I may no, be no, meandering no, a little no, bit for you. No, this but, is what this is about. Yeah. Okay, so we made a film about driverless cars yeah. and it's brilliant. And, you know, it, I, I totally get the idea that driverless cars were, are here and they're on the way mm-hmm. and they're going to start transforming the roads. And, mm-hmm. and people will say, well, there you go. Well, then all you need to do to do is is add stuff to you know that's the beginnings of the sure. of them being able to do everything sure. and it's like but the, but you can't you can teach a robot to catch a ball yeah but that's all it can do yeah exactly you can teach a car to drive itself but it will never catch a ball well this is the interesting debate especially in cars where it's moral programming isn't it do you yeah. crash into the four by four yeah with the family with their seatbelts on or the yeah. motorbike yeah which is less yes yeah. That is just a mind-blowing world. And I think, like the airline industry, so much of this is built on trust. Yeah. And with Malaysian Airlines as an example, they start, they have their, their fair few crashes and suddenly, like, I'm, I'm off to Australia soon, my girlfriend won't fly Malaysian Airlines. And right, it's an right. irrational yeah, fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you'll have, you'll have a crash, you'll have, you know, that, you'll have a massive pile-up or something on some motorway. Yeah. And that could be the industry nipped in the bud. It's yeah. a case of how do you build this trust alongside it. And I think it was only... Only the other week that Elon Musk was tweeted like, "If you're not scared of AI, you should be." Much, much more serious than the nuclear threat, something yeah. like that. But that's where I think. I mean, it's not that I disagree, disagree with Elon Musk, but I'm, I think my point is, you, you can build a machine to do one thing extraordinarily well. Sure. Right. Sure. But we are, we are, I would argue, mm. centuries away, centuries away from building a machine that can do everything. 
that can learn itself. Can't yeah, it? well, maybe I learn it, it teach itself, but it can only teach itself to drive better. It's n- a driverless car will never, ever, ever, ever teach itself how to cook uh, a, a loaf of bread. I see. Yeah. yeah. It will just. It just. It's never going to do it. Mm. You have to build a machine to build to, and teach that machine how to make a loaf of bread, mm. and then if you want that machine to drive a car, you have to. T- you know, it's. You, you, the, what the human can do, what the human mind is capable of, is adapting from one thing to another instantly, you mm, know, mm, will, mm. Uh, and being able to do everything. You and me can drive a car, we could learn to fly an aeroplane, we could learn to cook some bread, mm. we can throw a ball and catch it, see, we can yeah, read a book, yeah, yeah. We, can, we can mechanically engineer something, we can build a bridge. You and me can do that by ourselves without anything, we, you know, a bit of... Bit of tutoring from someone or, or, or go on a course, how complex will it be to build a robot that could do those things? I mean, I just, I find that really, like, really sort of um, far future science fiction stuff. Totally. You know? yeah. Whereas I do buy the fact that there are certain machines you can build and certain robots you can build that will do things far better than people can. Yeah. You know? I, I understand that, but only that one thing. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, talking about the um, the intervention almost of technology, I remember you dropped, um, you were telling us about shows when you came in with Carol to give the lecture. You talked about um, the search for immortality. And oh, yeah. I, I must admit, I, I, I went away and I forgot about it, so I haven't seen it. But what, how did that play out? What is, what is the deal? Is, it, is this on the horizon as well? Well, I, well, it depends who you speak to. I mean, in, in, mm. in the film, there's a, there's a big set of people that think it's, it's possible to... Uh, well, the idea, the concept of the film was that... Um, I forget his name now. Um, is he a Russian billionaire? A Russian, yeah, a, a like multi-millionaire. Yeah. We were very careful. I don't think he's yeah, sure. quite a billionaire yet. But, sure. um, and he, you know, wants to try and live forever. He wants to be immortal. So he's funding research into whether it would ever be possible to essentially however you want to describe it, download or upload your brain and personality into a computer. So we thought that was really exciting, interesting way of looking at technology. And and, uh, a fantastic director called Tristan Quinn made the film. And in that film, we then explore all the technology and what you're able to do. And and there there is some very interesting kind of, I call them baby steps, in, in terms of what you can... Now, you know, it's now possible to essentially freeze a brain, although it is only, you know, I think mm. it was a mouse brain or something, but you can you can capture a brain when it's dead, but w- when the synapses are still there, so effectively, arguably, mm. the thoughts are wow. intact, whereas previously you wouldn't be you wouldn't have been able to do that. But, Futurama, brain jar. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, again, m- most people, most actual scientists say... Uh, this is just nonsense. You never, you know, you'll never be able to to genuinely upload your brain into a computer or download your brain. What what that film ended on though was, um, and again, I I have to read the script or or watch, yeah, yeah, or watch the yeah, film yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. But I remember, um, fantastic. Uh, I think it was a Spanish scientist was talking to us about this new um, um, way of um, um, photographing a brain thinking. So he he used a it's a very very small creature. Oh, I creature, my yeah. God, no, so it's, a, it's 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 it's. A, I can't remember what they call, but it's a it's a, it's like a microscopic. It's like a, a, a you know a microscopic bug basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he um, 
you know, they genetically engineer it so you can see its little uh, neurons firing. So it up. Yeah, yeah. And it's not got many, so it's only got a few hundred. So mm -hmm. you can you can put it in a special machine and you can look at it as it's thinking, or at least, you know, and these little neurons will fire and light up. And obviously, as I say, these are baby steps, but in, let's say, 150, 200 um, next year, you know, you the idea is that you start to supersize this and and finesse the technology so that eventually we'll be able to look at inside your brain or my brain and watch and see it thinking and if you can do that the ramifications are extraordinary because if i can look at a human brain whilst it's speaking and see the bits that are lighting up then you know that if you, someone's uh needs an operation or you know you That's have the uh, of the damaged yeah. brain you can actually see where you should and shouldn't go. I mean, this is the sorts of technology. I think that the, what I think I would say to you is the joy of Horizon is is often not always the case, but mm. it's often taking an absolutely fantastical idea like can you upload your brain to a computer mm. and using that as a springboard into just telling some real, some actual real science that people are really doing of course that yeah. isn't science fiction and that isn't shining um, a spotlight on yeah, them yeah and that, yeah. that's we often make programs coming at that direction fascinating yeah so on this on the element of science fiction and the module again which through which i met you science and film production was fantastic because carol basically walked us through the eras through um looking at sci-fi films mm -hmm. and um explained in one way or another that these they kind of in inspected and projected our fears and hopes and worries about the future and played it out in the now. Ones that really stick with me is Salikin Home, which was the the precursor to the homeless charity shelter being made, and okay. um, Threads as well, which was about nuclear war based in Sheffield. And Threads, that was, I remember Threads as yeah, when it was broadcast. <laughs> and that was, yeah, and that is incredible. Um, so how do you feel about... Firstly, two-pronged two question. So how do you feel about the future? Do you feel like... Positive, hopeful, scared, knowing what you know, and then what do you think the role? Well, I suppose you kind of answered it before. So the role is to kind of like shine a light on research that's cutting edge and going forward. What, where, where does Horizon play in that space? Um, where Horizon plays, I don't. I mean, it, I, I, it, we we try to report on a range of subjects, scientific mm. subjects, mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously accurately with integrity. Um, and we try to, um, you know, Horizon is a celebration of science, um, um, ultimately. So the, 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 the programmes tend to be um, positive in their outlook, broad, usually broadly. Um, where I sit personally is, um, I don't know really, I tell you what's interesting from, from, from my perspective, is purely personal perspective, mm -hmm. is... is, is <clears throat> The sort of the world seems to have woken up to the environmental damage that people have done to the world, and there now seems to just be a kind of a, a kind of global shift in the way people think. So, um, people, I, I don't think you know, individual presidents and individual world leaders apart. I don't think humanity is going to suddenly start building thousands of new coal-powered power stations mm. in the next hundred years. I mean, they might still be doing 
It might still be happening now, but, like but say, I think the shift has yeah, begun. Yeah. The shift has begun. I think it was really interesting that you you can you can just see it. I think you can sort of see it and feel it. I mean, for someone who was you mentioned threads earlier, mm. I was I remember threads going. I was mm. absolutely bloody terrified as a, mm. as a kid, and it, us kids. I was born in the very late sixties, and so growing up in the seventies, but especially the sort of late seventies and early eighties. The kind of threat of nuclear Armageddon was was constant. Be- believe it or not, mm. it was like mm. it was a thing that you kind of knew about. Is it different to much more? Does it feel more intense than now? Would you say that we are in that similar climate now? Would you I don't know. I think this, you've got a lot of sort of in, you know politicians out there doing um, you know making decisions that are sort of can be that can be frightening. But what I guess what I'm trying to say is that for us it was a you know, you talk about it at school. I don't know if kids now, or young people now, have lessons at school where one of the things they'll talk about is yeah, what to yeah. do if there's a nuclear war. Very, yeah, very right. true. We yeah, definitely yeah. did that at school. Yeah, that is nuts. That, that is an, another level. Yeah, there. I mean, that was the sort of... Drop uh, under the desk, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You wow. know, I mean, it wasn't every day. Don't oh, yeah, get me wrong, But yeah, it, was, yeah, yeah. it was a thing that but happened. The I mean, fact that it was in school. Yeah, I mean, shows. I actually, as as you know, I come from uh, Barrow and Furniture, which builds nuclear, uh, nuclear submarines. So mm. it was even more relevant to us because we... You know, as kids, we were always taught that that we were actually one of the places that would be targeted because target, of the, of course, because of the yeah, shipyard. So, yeah. um, I can't really, I think we've got off on a slight tangent, but what I'm saying is I think the, the tipping point, yeah, I was go, going back to that, that was it, yeah, the environmental thing. Yes, yeah. But the tipping point, I think, has, has happened in a really positive way. I just hope it's happened soon enough, you know, I mean... Um, you know the the you know the creatures of the world are becoming extinct at an alarming rate and what have you and I think I just hope that the you know the the you know we've 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 recognised what we've done to the planet soon enough so that we can repair some of that and sure. and actually when you I won't quote you the numbers because I don't know what they mm-hmm. are but when you actually look at some of the some of the undertakings of the people that, that I think. Um, I think there's a there's a big project in China to plant, you know, fifty billion trees or something to stop the encroachment of the desert along one of its borders, and that's going to create the biggest, you know, jungle forest, whatever you want to call it, for decades and decades and decades. And I think these are the sorts of things that are kind of happening now. That I know I was going to say to you that that who would have thought that you can walk through. A city like London, or 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 many towns now, and mm. there would be electric charging posts for electric cars yeah. everywhere. I mean, I walk home here in West London, and there's the pop, popping up all over the place. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You just kind of get the idea that these things are, are, are you know, are sort of collectively as a as a as a species, we've kind of come to the conclusion that yes, we are polluting the planet and no that's not a very good idea so we have to should really do something about it before it's too late and I, you know so do you think so i, I was at the cop 21 protests actually and um uh, with my university's fossil free society and there are big movements within that i think it was something like 47 universities in the last month or so uh divested and made claims for that which is great and you have these really positive step forward especially on the political stage where it is so so complex but then you have people like actors like Donald Trump pulling out and stepping backwards. Do you think they're kind of inevitable knee-jerk reactions that when you step back and look at the picture from a 
a wider point of view, you'll see that there'll be kind of jagged points, but the slow ascension is towards uh, renewables and yeah, stuff like uh, that. That's, I yeah, do. That's, I think that. Yeah. And I think it's re- when you look at the... Or even when you hear people, whether it's a... Who knows? There might be um, there might be just uh, you know uh, talking a good talk, but you can see big mega companies diversifying and going down that totally. Uh, totally. Was it again? You can f- find out. Was it BMW or big German? Anyway, mm-hmm. big German car manufacturer saying mm-hmm. we're not going to make any petrol cars in whatever it was. You know, within totally. the next five yeah. years or ten years. They, they that's. I don't think you can sort of stop that. Uh, well, financially, it makes sense, really. doesn't it? If you're starting to get eroding profits from fossil fuels yeah. and renewables are making the grade, but I feel it's kind of the huge powers of the fossil fuel companies with it all to lose. And do they make the first and positive step to jump with their existing platform to renewables and really harness yeah. it? Or do they cling on to their power as, you know, the kind of the foundation well, to eroded... I guess if I was running a, one of those big companies, you would you would you would look at where the growth is. Yeah. If you if you you know ultimately, if 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 you're of a generation now where you know you're gonna seriously consider an electric car. Mm. I, mean, I don't know if you've got a car or not, but if no. you, it, when the time comes, I guess you will seriously consider it. Mm. Right. Mm. I couldn't even have that consideration when I first got my car because it didn't exist. Wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't an option. It wasn't yeah. invented. Yeah. Um, or certainly in, in a way that you could just go into a shop and buy one. And so I'm guessing there's a lot of people like you out there that will buy electric cars, you know. Mm. And then when the companies that create petrol cars say, but look, this young person's bought an electric car and they didn't buy our petrol car. Market forces. Why, why aren't we building electric cars? Because... Mm we could have had that sale, then, you know, it's a no-brainer, really. But, mm. listen, I'm not a business Yeah, yeah, person, of course. No, um, no, no, it's just you know, interesting to... Yeah, it is interesting that, yeah. you know, you, 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 you can see... I mean, drawing it back to Horizon, what's interesting is the, um, the archive goes back to 1964, I think. Is it 50, 55 years old? It's 55 like that, years no. old now. We're in our 55th year. Wow, yeah. yeah. And... Um, I am a, I mentioned earlier about being a, co- a collector, mm-hmm. and so when I uh, took over as editor, I wanted to try and watch every single episode that uh, has ever been. I'm about seventy percent of the way through now, wow. something like that. How many hours are we talking? There's about Well, it's there's about one thousand five hundred because it goes up. It's not always, you know, some years it was only 10, some years it was 25, but, of course, yeah. you know. How do you find the time? That's insane. Uh, well, yeah. you know, I, do, I sit on trains and aeroplanes yeah. a lot and, you know, I just kind of put 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 them on my computer and what. Yeah. And it's great. And it's it, partly it's research as well because, you know, we have a lot of films and whenever there's a new film, um, like I was uh, I was um, interviewing today about the film about Spina Bifida mm. And one of the things I was interested in when I commissioned that film was what Horizon had done about disability in general over the years. So then I asked one of our, our archivists to, to pull up the tape so we can get copies of them yes. and then we can go yes. and look at them and see if there's anything interesting that can play into that programme. So, so on, on that note, looking back, having the, the ability to do that, do you see, because again, on the science fiction note, it, it reflects the the general mood and temperament towards a certain issue at the time, you know, one that comes to mind is mental health, you know, yeah. and you've had the whole 
uh, campaign with the royals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's come on leaps and bounds. And yeah. you think of um, attitude towards uh, homosexuals and Alan Turing, etc. Yeah. Do you see that play out in Horizon material, like yeah. the stuff that you look so at? So it's completely. I mean, that's it is one a of product the joys of this era. Yeah. Part of it is the is the language used, which um, you know. Some is quite offensive, mm. and you would never dream of using it now. Mm. Part of it is just, but what I say they, they do, I, I, I like saying this, is that they, the, the, the programmes kind of shine a, a, a mirror back at the, at the, the, the science, but also the society in of which course. the programmes were made at the time. Yeah. And you get a really good sort of um, insight into how science was perceived and reported Right, so that's really important in terms of as an actual um, artifact of of the thing. Sorry, I'm, I'm maybe not making sense, but no, the, no, the, I get the it. The thing yeah. is the television program. Sure, sure. And and so for the last fifty five years, you have got you can watch these programs as an artifact and go, well, that's really interesting. I mean, I'll give you an example of that, which I may have mm. done in your and your on your course, which is. The very first programs, they're very static. Um, and then very quickly, you see them moving because um, handheld cameras had started to come in. So mm. you start to see how these, um, there's a lot of handheld camera work in a lot of very early horizons, but they're all black and white. Mm. When colour starts to which I can't remember when colour was brought to BBC Two, but when colour cameras started coming, the the programmes became static again because the cameras were too heavy hmm. to carry around. And that's kind of symbiotic. It feeds into the way that the programme shot and stuff. I think exactly. Around. So what you get is... Um, I said they were static at the very beginning. What I actually meant was they were very um, nimble. So the very first sort of series of Horizon, what you see is quite a lot of handheld camera work. Hmm. As the colour episodes begin the films become far more static and don't move as much. Mm, mm. Which means the one way you can do you can you can make your film is to, to put it in a studio. So all of a sudden you go from a lot of kind of handheld exteriors and Running following people stuff. around yeah, yeah. to being inside a studio and not moving very much. Mm. And then then you can see how the colour cameras start to get lighter and so you start to move around a, a little bit more again. And you can so that's that's a a kind of um, a not very elegant description of the of the uh, the artifact of the TV program itself. It's certainly, an episode in in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Having a kind of retrospective. Yeah, sure. I'm sure it is. But yeah. then, and then the other thing is the way is the way that the science is reporting is reported, and the and the reflection of the society at the time. And there's a, f- a favourite program of mine. I'm afraid I can't remember the, the titles. I'd have to look it up. But mm. it's from the early seventies. And it was about um, um, dialysis and kind of kidney dialysis and that kind of thing. And there was a lady who had to have dialysis two or three times a week because um, of the um, uh, because of the you know the problem she had. Mm. And there's a scene, and the lady with the dialysis is sat on a on a sofa, and next to her, her husband is sat on the sofa. And the interview begins, and the interviewer asks her husband what it's like living with someone who's got kidney dialysis. Wow. And all he does is basically mourn about it for three <laughs> minutes, you know. Fascinating, And yeah. then at the end of it, the interviewer asks the lady what it's actually like. So, you know, it's a product of its time. Totally, yeah, 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 yeah. But still, nonetheless, incredible yeah. to see how it's moved on and changed. Yeah. 
That's wicked. Talking of like change, and now uh, I think in Paul's interview towards the end, you were mentioning that you could very well be the last editor of Horizon with the the advent of indies and stuff like this. So I just wanted to get your take, I suppose, on do you think this is a natural evolution or is this a kind of forced uh, move from you know budgets being squeezed and stuff like that? The kind of the the selling of IP and shows and kind of yeah, it's, I suppose it's the same as having your digital calendar and the way your um, externally sourcing stuff like that so you're now giving it the brand of BBC but I don't know some indie makes it what do you think about that is that a positive thing or it's it's a definitely a natural evolution of of what's happened and I think what you've got to remember I mean I, I, I mentioned that to Paul but I think what you've got to remember is the title editor is this is effectively a historical uh, it's a historical title so mm. people in the BBC or in any industry and in you know it in the television industry, but in the BBC and in Indies, um, my job is is uh, as an executive producer. That's what my title is. Sure. In Horizon, you are called the editor because you commission the films. I see. Okay. Um, in the new world of BBC Studios, where um, the BBC is, to all intents and purposes, um, working on under the same rules as an indie, mm-hmm. and because uh, the Horizon Strand is going to, ne- from next year onwards, will be made by both BBC Studios and Indies. Okay, I see. You yeah. can't have a person within BBC Studios of where course, I work. Yeah, because it's unfair, isn't it? Because it's unfair. Someone's got your ear. Per- oh, exactly. send us some so, work. Yeah, yeah, no chance. Yeah. So it's it's so it's just a natural progression, actually. And you know, the the as I say, the the the, 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 the these sorts of titles are semi-historical anyway really is the is the honest answer sure um i think it's just i mean my main i mean i've loved uh, horizon my entire life i uh, i'm lucky enough to be the editor of it now Mm. um and i just think that as long as it um survives and flourishes that's actually all i care about i mean and you've got to remember as well again looking at the historically about the strand is that it's only from about the, uh, let me get this right, the sort of mid two thousands ish. I'd have to check my yeah, database. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that so? It's sort of about the last ten years um, when indies didn't make episodes. So ever since Horizon has been for the for the vast amount of its life, mm-hmm. you had programs that the BBC made and programs that the BBC basically acquired, sure, and then put under the umbrella title of horizon yeah yeah and it's it's essentially just going back to that really okay i see and do you think that's a step forward in quality how will that affect quality and both of the broadcasts and then of the industry as a whole because i am trying to climb a greasy ladder i've worked at like several indies doing unpaid internships you know the usual stuff yeah and what i found is it's the supply and demand uh, paradox there's so many indies out there vying for business saying we'll make it I, I, can't, I was doing some. It was actually at BBC Made of L Studios. It was a music video, and the company that I was with had won it by undercutting the other company. Yeah. And they had basically over delivered a massive amount of work, you know, really yeah. high end production for a tiny budget. And then um, they're back in the office going, Have we set that as a new precedent? What have we done? Blah, yeah. blah, blah. So, what do you think about those two factors? So, the broadcast well, quality and then. The... I think the broadcast quality is. is, is 
it is dependent on the program. Of course. So yeah. I think one of the things I'd said to you in 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 when I did my talk at, at your uni was that you know there's a certain there's a certain way of making a TV program and a certain price that you understand how to make it and you can you can move that slightly but you can't move it hugely you know cg computer graphics cost x amount of money and and you know what that is Mm -hmm. you know how much it costs to hire a camera team to shoot something sure you know you can calculate if your program needs to go to america and you need to take a camera crew and a presenter and you know you can you can very accurately figure that stuff out so Mm. in fact it's undercutting people just on cost is people see through that yeah yeah quite honestly very quickly so it's quite a level playing field it's quite a level playing field you know i think what you can do often and if you're very lucky is you find very very talented people that means and you you can marry them up with a with a particular project that gets you something really special without having to spend a fortune on it and by that I mean you know there are certain people certain directors who are absolutely brilliant self-shooters mm. now you know when you self-shoot a program it doesn't mean it looks cheap mm-hmm. it can mean it looks cheap mm. if the self-shooter is not a very good self-shooter yeah but if the self-shooting um director has a real eye and a real talent then mm. that program can look better than something that you may have got a camera crew to shoot so uh, it, it depends on the subject quite honestly yeah, um, yeah and i think that from my point of view having run horizon for the last four four and a half years whatever it is now mm. is is that you know the the, the 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 all we ever look for is, is the best ideas and how to tell those ideas in a way that delivers you know value for money for the people uh, the license fee pays in terms of the BBC but um, we're always looking for um, the best ideas and we're always at the sort of level that we make TV at whether it's within the BBC or ITV or Channel 4 whatever mainstream prime time television the, the, the sort of we know how to make programmes of a certain quality mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I don't think the quality will ever go down because it just wouldn't be you wouldn't. I suppose to get that BBC stamp of approval, there is a certain quality control anyway, isn't there? So if it's not up to scratch, then it won't be going out under that banner. Yeah, anyway. and, well, but I think, like I said, you 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 don't. It's not. I think I often think it's interesting to talk to people who are maybe starting out in, yeah, the, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah, their yeah. career. Yeah. To say that it's not. I mean, we know what we're doing. Yeah. And everyone knows what they're doing in yeah. in, in our industry to a certain degree, mm-hmm. and you get to a certain level in our industry by pe- other people looking at your work and trusting you to deliver a program of a certain quality mm. and so that trickles down all the time it's not um like you kind of go in and say well we can save you know half the budget if we don't hire a a, a, a director that we that we're confident with but we've got this new person that we can hire mm. um who's half the price but we don't know what sort of what sort of stuff they do because you just yeah. wouldn't do it it's just it's you know it's not it is it's a professional industry you know yeah i see i see and on that note i was going to ask you what advice would you give to your 20 year old self but in this discussion i feel like the media landscape has shifted so much in terms of your approach in in um maybe being like lifelong that the bbc doesn't exist anymore 
What would you say to a twenty? What would you say to me? Essentially, yeah. it's not. It's not beating around. Well, no, no. Well, that's all right. I would say uh, don't forget that ultimately um, your ideas mm. are, are everything. That's the currency. Yeah. That is the currency, um, um, and so you need some really good, original, interesting, funny, quirky, you know, um, ambitious ideas. Mm. Um, Ideas are absolutely everything in, in to us in television uh, and radio and mm-hmm, podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know that's it. And yeah. don't be precious about them. You mm. know you've got to um, you've got to enjoy making up ideas, totally. and dreaming up um, stories uh, to tell. Whether you go down the factual route like I did, with, yeah. I've only ever worked in factual TV, but it's exactly the same in um, in, um, in in fiction. So you know that. All you do is make up a story and then obviously be talented enough to write that story and, and what have you. So ideas are everything. Um, there's, there's everything else you can learn within the industry. Everything else, you know, you kind of come into the industry reasonably raw. Most of us, me included, started doing work experience yep. and then yep. became a runner mm-hmm. then became a junior researcher and a researcher and... You, you do your time like a sort of very long apprenticeship and you learn all the skills along the way about directing or sound recording or self-shooting mm-hmm, or whatever mm-hmm. that might be. I don't think you necessarily need to have... If you've got them skills to start with, even better. But mm. I don't think you need to necessarily think, you know, I'm not even going to try and get into the BBC or, or ITV or Channel 4 or anywhere until I can operate a camera and a mic and a... Because you will pick that up along the way, but I think if you you the very least you need is to be able to think and make up stuff, as mm. I'd like to put it, and and remember that those ideas are, are are everything. And the trick I like to say, which I like to to say to people like you, is is and it's what I did, and I was very lucky. We mentioned Stanley earlier in the conversation. And I met him, my first half hour of television that I d- directed, that was all mine. It was the was Spider-Man a, show, wasn't it? Tomorrow's yeah. World about Spider-Man, uh, when the first movie came out back in the early 2000s. And, and I met Stan Lee, so I met my childhood hero. Incredible. It, it was amazing. And one of the reasons I kind of did that was when I was starting off, I, I sat at home one night and I opened my pad and I wrote down all the people in the world I'd like to meet. And then I started to invent TV programs so that I could try to meet these people, and that's a really good trick if you if you're sort of stuck for uh, for an idea is just think well who's my favourite band who's my favourite author who's my favourite writer what's my favourite TV program what's my favourite film what whatever it might be it doesn't matter who's my favourite scientist you know um, and then write that name and then make up a TV show and then try and write that as a TV show and then try and pitch it and get it commissioned and then you might go and meet these, the, that person, you know, be amazing. Yeah, fascinating, yeah, because I was going to ask, like, what kind of process is it? So it's literally that pen and pad and you're coming up with these ideas that would, you can see them in, whatever, you know, maybe, maybe it's Bear Grylls or something, you go, okay, what's he known for, what hasn't he done? What can we get him doing? What would he buy into? What does he stand for? Et cetera, et cetera. And before you know it, you've kind of manifested this small idea of a however many part series and you go from there. And then, uh, again, with Paul, you mentioned the, the making of a sub. That's when you stepped... The making of a nuclear submarine, sorry. And that's when you stepped into kind of a series producer role. Yeah. So that was... 
obviously drawing on your background of painting subs maybe and, and knowing about them then you taught yourself to edit getting getting a little taster tape together and then yeah. you had the network perhaps to be able to put it in front of people that would you know would care about it so that's still a valid route that that kind of taster yeah, tape yeah i think route so and... i mean i mean just in, in case your um, listeners don't know so i um yeah i worked in a Shipyard for ten years. Yeah, sorry, kind of. You've told so this story I, so many times. I, I didn't. Um, Painting nuclear submarines, and and uh, when I when I got had my first interview at the BBC with the the head of development, then um, I had this idea. I mean, I took in about twenty five ideas from memory, just a list with a paragraph on each. Some of them would have been no doubt about Stan Lee and comics or something. Of course, yeah. One of the. Um, Ideas was called, well, it was actually called the Yard, and it was a kind of uh, an observational documentary about the shipyard where I used to work. And in, within that, you would explore how they build uh, the submarines that they build there, which is where I used to work. And um, and it was constant; they never got commissioned. And mm. I used to kind of it became a kind of an ongoing joke a little bit because um, I would pitch it every few years, and every few years it got it, it never got commissioned. And then, uh, yeah, it was about 10 years after, maybe not quite as long as that, but by that time we had moved from uh, an editing system called Avid, which is which is a kind of, you know, it's a professional editing mm-hmm, system, mm-hmm. but you don't, you never had Avid at home then. And, and we'd moved in the BBC to Final Cut Pro, which was a sort of a professional editing system, but you could have your own copy if you bought it sure. and put it on your computer. So. I decided to do that, so I got a copy of Final Cut Pro, I taught myself how to edit, and then I thought, well, I was again, I was looking for ideas and things, which is what we enjoy doing in TV, and so I found a load of um, just footage and stuff on the internet that the uh, company who builds them, which is called BA Systems, had, mm-hmm. had put on the internet and stuff, and I just kind of uh, got got it and got it onto my computer and just started playing with it to make a sort of a, a taster tape for what I thought this programme would look like. and To a banging Kaiser Chiefs track. To a Kaiser Chiefs track, yeah. exactly. And um, it was just, it's just a little internal thing. It was a two-minute thing that um, I then brought into a meeting and said, look, I know I've been talking about this programme <laughs> yeah. for years and everyone rolls their eyes yeah, again. And, and I said, but look, I've cut this just to show you because you've got to see what this thing looks like. It, 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 and... It never comes to life on purpose. I played, I played the tape, and and that was it. It was literally. I mean, it, when I say it was commissioned on the spot, it wasn't quite, but it was within a day or two. Fantastic. I got an, an email from the from the from the commissioner at the time saying, um, you know, let's go with this. And then, what was interesting, the, re, the so I was the, the director of that film. It was, mm. it was really it was the last film I ever fully directed it mm-hmm. properly. Um, but what happened was you rarely get a single episode commissioned, so they asked me to think of some more ideas, which I did, and so we had a three-part series which got commissioned, and I see, I made my film and series produced the other two, and then we got a second series commissioned off the back of the first series. Fantastic, and yeah. so, you know, it turns into... <clears throat> so there's something that was poo-pooed for so many years it actually takes on a life of its own and then some. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and you find that with a lot of ideas in telly that if they're not, if they're not commissioned the first time, it sure. doesn't necessarily mean they're completely dead. You know, you just put them in, your, in a desk somewhere or, sure, or, or sure. On, in a folder in your computer and, 
and every few years you sort of open them up again and have a read and see if there's been a an insight or an update or a new way of doing it mm. and, and you know that's what we do you know? yeah I think that rings true a lot with journalism the kind of why now and also um, with music I was at the amazing Pink Floyd V&A exhibition oh yeah yeah and they were saying how they shelved you know X amount of tracks for like five ten years to then come back and go actually I really like you know the lick in this one or yeah. the so yeah. it's complete that creative process I completely yeah. understand yeah. yeah I'm very conscious we're coming up to the last two minutes of your time okay. yeah, very busy man so we'll close up I'll, I'm going to um, steal a few questions from old James Lipton from inside the uh, actor's studio okay. very short short fire I love them so all credit to him and uh, I think actually oh, Bernard uh, Pivot hosted okay. it before so he should have proper accreditation so what's your favourite word uh, fox. Mm. What's your least favourite word? No. 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 N O. N O. Oh, brilliant! Yes, that is northern. So yeah, that is why you're the editor. Yeah. What turns you on, creatively, emotionally, or spiritually? Um, I actually I creating stuff. I really love being creative. I think one of the things I was going to add earlier about the um the creative process is there is nothing like having a thing that you've made mm. you know um i was into music for a long time and and you know produced a, a, a well, vinyl ep and a, awesome. and, a, and a cd and there is something very magical about holding something in your hands that you have actually made i mean i still dabble with a bit of painting here and there and stuff like that but there's just something great about having a blank whatever it is in front of you and a week or a month or a year later having a thing in front of you that is a thing that you mm. can own and look at or give away or do you know stick in a drawer but just that i really love doing that i get a real thrill out of that yeah i, I completely agree that's awesome and then uh, you can see the format of this now what turns you off um i well, well i tell you it's a really it's a se- it's a serious answer but mm. i really don't like animal cruelty in any way shape or form mm. um um you know that's it i'm a I, I stopped eating meat when I was 16. You vegan? fish, so okay. no, I'm not a proper vegetarian sure. even. But, but in my day, and from my town, just not eating Pretty forward red thinking. and white meat was, was, big, was, was good enough. But I don't like any animal cruelty, whether it's... Um, I mean, I'm not against eating meat, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I just think you need to ethically bring, you know, look after animals. But um, I don't like anything like that. Yeah. I find it incredibly upsetting and uh, annoying you know. yeah completely fair enough yeah you donated to Greenpeace or any of those kind of I WWF do, no, but we've got I've got rescue dogs so there you go rescue dogs so you know fantastic doing your bit what sound do you love a rock music rock music yeah. particular band if I had to press uh, you well if you were going to really press me and if I was going to really embarrass myself which sure. I, I don't mind uh, I'm broad-shouldered enough. My favourite band as a teenager was Twisted Sister. Twisted Sister? Yeah, you need to look them up. They're I will. kind of American hair metal band. But okay. I was really into that sort of Twisted Sister, uh, Wasp, Iron Maiden, um, that kind of... Uh, Guns N' Roses were probably Wasp, yeah. the cooler side of the bands I used to listen to. I see, um, okay. You know, yeah. it was that sort of poison... Yeah. You know, that kind of, those sorts of bands. Fantastic. I'll make a playlist. I'll check it out. <laughs> so what uh, What sound do you hate? Only three more now. Uh, what sound do I hate? I, got, I don't know, actually. Um, the classics, you know, you've got nails on chalkboard, yeah, stuff like that, 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 but they're a bit conventional. Really, yeah. You don't really hate, I don't know if I, uh, um, I don't think, I don't know if I do hate any sounds. No I, worries. I can't think of a 
sound I don't really like, apart from, yeah, the obvious squeaky things. But Sure, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, fair, fair enough. Uh, what's your favourite curse word? I'm not going to say it here on your podcast. What's the first letter? Uh, I'm not going to say that. You don't say that either? Oh, really? Oh, wow, okay. Put put it this way, I'm a northerner who worked in a shipyard for 10 years. So you've got an extensive vocabulary. There isn't a single curse word I do not know (laughs) well. Fair enough, yeah, we'll pass over that. What profession other than yours, which I think they were fun, is tough to remember, but what profession other than yours would you really like to attempt? Oh, good. I, I mean, when I was a teenager, I always wanted to be a, a, a rock star. I mean, mm. that was my dream. You know, we, I was in bands for five or ten years. I ran a little recording studio. Incredible. Well, it sounds a, like you made a bloody good North. go of it. Not really. I mean, that's, I was never good enough, you know. But um, um, no, so, so music is actually, the, creating music is mm. the other thing I really love doing. I still do it now and again, not very often. Uh, when I was producing and directing, I used to... Um, um, uh, write music for my films and drop them in here and there. Fantastic, so, yeah. So you can um, give yourself a little nod. So yeah, there. I think one, you know, when 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 the when all this is over and the, and I've got time, I will just tinker around with with songwriting and bits and bobs. But, What's your yeah, instrument, by the way? It's just guitar. I mean, okay. But self-taught I was, I, or lessons at school or no, self- no, no, just self-taught. Yeah. But, but the thing is, I what I did was I had a studio um, with the friends. We mm. sort of got a studio together. And what I learned to do reasonably well was produce. Mm. So although I'm an t- absolutely terrible musician by any proper standard, I can still sit in a studio and make myself sound like I'm a reasonable mu- musician because I know how to, you know, multi-track, double-track, multi-layer, do all that kind of thing. So awesome. I spent years playing around with instruments, so... Um, and I still own a lot of them, and, and you know, fantastic. But it, it's a hobby. Do you reckon there's um there's a call for the old boys getting back together? Well, for we a... keep threatening it every time. My best friend now is the drummer in my in the band we are in, so we still see each other, and then occasionally, you know. Uh, uh, meet up and have a few beers and fantastic to, uh, yeah. to reform. But I think, You're right. Well, you've already yeah. got the inroad to the festivals, I haven't know. you? you can go, <laughs> I'll finish this talk and uh, here's a little one I wrote last yeah, week. <laughs> yeah. no, not really, but we, it, it was good fun and uh, I was immensely proud. I released a CD with uh, my best, another another really close friend of mine, and um, he and we. Um, I'm, I'm really proud of that. I'm still very very proud of that mm. record, but. Um, um, yeah, it it was always only ever a hobby. But when you're a teenage boy, then you dream of of you know of course yeah. stardom. Yeah. Um, so I think um, yeah, that would be the better ch- choice too. Yeah. Fantastic. So flip side of that, which job would you least like to attempt other than your own? Um, I don't know, but I think uh, I'm going to give again a kind of serious answer, which is I spent it was probably eight years or so in the, in the shipyard in total. And I made a lot of really good friends there, and I'm still, I still sort of enormously proud of doing that. I did an old-fashioned apprentice, which, uh, so I left school when I was 15. I got a job as an apprentice painter, uh, industrial painter, uh, when I was 16, and it's a four-year apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. So I did. Uh, I was 20 when I got my cards. Is mm. what the, the way they describe it. And then I spent another two or three years doing painting Trident submarines and what have you. Mm. And, um, you know, I really did not enjoy doing it. It's not a very um, enjoyable job for me. So I think, you know, I would, I would, I I did a a lot of years in the shipyard, but I remember when I left, 
I was made redundant, but I kind of made myself made Course, redundant yeah, like, yeah. in a way. They were getting rid of you know thousands of people, and I remember leaving, and it just being the sort of happiest day, you know, one of the happiest days of my life. And when I and I walked out of those gates, and and I I remember saying to myself, I'm never coming back in this place unless I want to to return, and that was why I was so pleased with the how to build a nuclear submarine program because when I did go back it was about, been about 17 yeah. years later but it was with a camera crew and it was under my terms yeah. so um, I think I would just the, 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 the sort of boring serious answer no not at all I, w- I would never want to go back to painting submarines because you know it's uh, you've it's, served your time yeah I've served my time and it's um yeah, that's that. Yeah. Do you see? Is there like any particular lesson or something that really plays out in your adult life that you perhaps have picked up from that, or not really? Not well, everything. I mean, I think you know it gives you a really unique perspective on life. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's the, the painting side of it isn't particularly hard in sure. terms of the manual side of it, but mm. it's um, but it is generally that sort of industry is hard manual labour. You know, you you if you're a welder. Or a or a plater, you know, it's really tough. I mm. mean, it's heavy, dirty, hard, hot work, mm. you know. And mm. it, with painters, we wasn't particularly um, like heavy in, in that sense. But um, you know, you would you would have to crawl all over, and and you know, you were in very very tight spaces for months on end doing all the all the painting work. So I think um, I'm just and always have been when I when I when I broke into television and um, and then kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of settled into television and dis- and got a career and, a, and a, you know, and, and realised that, gosh, I've got a career for, for the rest of my life if I want it. Mm. Um, that, I was so great, I've always been so incredibly grateful for what I've got in telly. Because I knew totally, you've got the spectrum I had come mm. from, and I think that gives you a nice perspective. You know, mm. I mean, when I, I went to the again, this is not for a big story, but mm. when I left the shipyard and before I got into telly, I went to art college. Um, and while I was at art college, I you know I worked for in Tesco's at night, sh- stacking shelves, and that's another one of those jobs that you know it's incredibly. It's not particularly sort of hard work, mm-hmm. but it's 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 tough if that's not what you want to do totally and, yeah you know so i i think i, I having that perspective of what of a, of a sort of you know a job that isn't doesn't come with all the great fun things that i do just makes me very very grateful of the job i've got today really fantastic great and then the final question to wrap up is if heaven exists what would you want god to say to you on arrival to the pearly gates uh i don't think heaven exists so I'm afraid Pass. I, I work in the horizon, so I'm not <laughs> in any sense religious whatsoever. So Fair enough. So, okay, to, to borrow uh, Mark LaRouche, the brilliant guy who I went to a podcast series of recently, to borrow his final question is, what's one thing that many people don't know about you? One thing that many people don't know about me? Um, gosh, that's another re- very good question. Um I um, I had what I think is one of the longest lived rabbits of all time, Go which on. was Bigwig, my my first pet, Bigwig, which I got when I was about seven or eight. Fantastic name and, for an animal. And enough, named from the uh, from um, uh, Watch It Down. Of course, yeah. And it died when I was seventeen, I think. 
Good Lord. So, wow. And so I was like, I got it. I got that rabbit as a small boy mm. and it died when I was a young man. So Jeez. my dad told me when I'd like, you know, come home from a night out with the, <laughs> with the boys. In the Not when you want to hear when you've got a kebab in your hand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I can't remember what would that make it. It was about, it was about 14 or 15. That's an incredible. He's going to school. He's got his degree. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. an amazing lifespan for a rabbit. Yeah, I know. Wow. Well, there you go. So, <laughs> something you, not everyone knows. And thank you so much for sharing the time and the, okay. all your amazing anecdotes and parcels of wisdom, Steve. Really no appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Well, there you go. A very, very old rabbit indeed. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to Steve, an incredible man with so much insight and vast career experience as well. So, yeah, really, really thankfully took the time out to chat to me. Uh, links to BBC Horizon will be in the description not that you need it just a simple uh, Google there but again yeah really really cool so if you haven't checked out the previous episode please do and subscribe to be the first to hear some of the next ones coming so we've got Sarah Wingate Gray the itinerant poetry librarian who started her own magazine when she was, I can't remember now, maybe it was 13, something so young, she was at festivals interviewing artists, etc. at that age, and then that only played out till she travelled the world for four years, being a moving library for poetry. So, incredible woman with many fantastic stories there. And then we also have Carl Gombrich, a polymath that runs, that's the programme director of Arts and Sciences at UCL, who's just a fantastic man as well. So, two more brilliant chats to come and plenty more on the horizon as well so thanks for tuning in and i'll see you at the next one